This is Blue Moon. It's the original fan-made Manchester City podcast. Coming up, we've got news and views from City's Week. It's your club and this is your show. Maybe this is the first week of the season where not everything has gone to plan. It started quite well as Manchester City raced into a two-goal lead against Nottingham Forest, but a silly red card to the most important player in the team, followed by a Carabao Cup exit on Wednesday, has reshaped the mood a little bit. Still, we'll be taking all the positives from the last seven days on this week's Blue Moon podcast. City are still top of the table with a perfect record, and they've got a manager who excels when it looks like a tactical tweak is needed to solve an injury or suspension to a key player. The Forest game has also given us the perfect opportunity to reminisce about the times that City have gone down to 10 men and still played really well. That's to come later in the show. We'll also catch up with Dave as a party from Talking Wolves to find out more about this weekend's opponents. Plus, we'll look ahead to the midweek Champions League tie with RB Leipzig. I'm David Mooney and bringing along their sunny dispositions and nothing's going to stop us attitudes for this one, we've got City fan Richard Burns. Hello, David. How are you? I'm not too bad. Are you stumped by the fact that I've given you a sunny disposition? <laughs> um, I'm just trying to adjust to it. I'm delighted to be viewed that way. That's e- great. Excellent. Well, while you adjust to it, let's introduce one football's Dan Burke as well. Hi, Dan. Hello, David. My glass is always uh, half full of Carabao, I would say. Yeah. Well, not anymore. Not for this season. No. <laughs> yeah. Nothing's going to stop yeah. us attitude. You got one of those? Um, I mean, some things will stop us. That's inevitable, I think. But like, you know. I, I try and keep on the uh, the sunny side of the street, that's for sure. Good. I mean, I, I, some things will stop us, but most things won't. Isn't really as catchy, is it? So uh, Not I, really, no, yeah. no. But it's a bit more realistic, I would say. <laughs> yeah, well, you'd we'll go get, with that. You'd never get a hip-hop song out of that. No, you wouldn't. <laughs> you wouldn't, indeed. Um, for the 2023-24 season, the Blue Moon Podcast is sponsored by Green King Sport, where football is more than a game. Green King Sport venues are showing every televised Manchester City fixture over the 23-24 season. So instead of turning to the internet for a dodgy stream, get your mates together and get down to your local Green King pub and get closer to to the action. Green King Sports have just recently launched the Green King Sports Instagram page too. That'll be home to fan content, deals and competitions throughout the season. Drop them a follow and you won't just be the first to know all about this. You'll also be helping out the Blue Moon podcast as well. Um, let's start then with, uh, I mean, we're looking back over Forest and Newcastle, um, except there's, I don't think there's a huge amount to say about uh, Newcastle when a lot of the stories from this week centre around Forest. Um, it's weird, Dan, isn't it, talking about uh, uh, the, that game in particular, a, a solid 2-0 win with 10 men. And the talking point is, why on earth has Rodri done what he's done? <laughs> well, has anyone considered that Morgan Gibbs-White just has one of those faces? <laughs> I, think, Maybe. I think it was a reasonable enough reaction. Um, yeah, it was, I mean, it was a very moody game of football, wasn't it? There was a lot of uh, what you might call toxic masculinity on display, I thought, and uh, a, lot of, a lot of cards being brandished. Um, I think that was a case of Rodri kind of you know, we'd been having a really good game up to that point, kind of asserting his dominance, um, which I think would have been fine. You know, a bit of uh, pushing and shoving is usually fine, isn't it? But it was uh, it was the moment he raised his hands, put his hands around Gibbs White's throat that um, was the the real uh, moment that got him got him sent off. And I think- does it matter that I mean, his hands were around his throat for what point one of a millisecond? Does that yeah, matter? Yeah, but I think it does matter, doesn't it? I don't think you want to. You want to see that kind of thing on a football pitch. It's a bit out of order, really. Um, I think he realised as soon as he'd done it that he'd made a, a grave mistake. And um, hopefully it'll make him think twice next time he's in that kind of situation to control his emotions a bit better, which I think was the um, the, the phrase Guardiola used after the game. 
And in a way, I, I don't mind the fact that Rodri's been suspended. I think we kind of needed this opportunity to come up with um, with a contingency plan for his absence because I think we're a little bit over-reliant on him and we need to think about other solutions because, you know, if he were to get injured for a couple of months, that could really derail our entire season. So, um, yeah, I, th- I think, uh, you know, it'll be interesting to see how it goes. Hopefully it won't affect results too much uh, in the coming games and uh, Rodri can have a bit of time on the naughty step to think about what he's done. Yeah. Richard, have you uh, have you ever throttled anyone? No, no. <laughs> Doesn't seem like your character. I'll be honest with you, but I just thought we, I thought like, if I threw that question out there, we might suddenly get a, a revelation. I don't know. <laughs> um, it's not something that I'd probably admit to on record if I had done it. Um, <laughs> but no, I categorically, uh, categorically have not. No, fair enough. Um, just on on uh, Rodri then. Um, Guardiola said after the game that it was almost like the state of the game allowed it to happen. He said this in the uh, in the post-match press conference. The game was incredible, perfect with 35 minutes for both sides, one team to try, another team to try. And after the minute when it came a little bit chaos, it's not for our responsibility, that is for sure. But Rodri had to control himself and his emotions, so this he had to do. You've mentioned a couple of times that the game changed and it was not your responsibility. Are you talking there about the referee or are you talking about Absolutely. the Forest players? Changed the, the way the game. I'm not saying the, the red card is not red card, except for other things, like make the situation differently. At the end, we have a 10 against 11 is not the problem for this referee. It's because it was our absolute mistake. But what happened with seven or eight yellow cars and everything, when everything happened, it's no responsibility for Nottingham Forest, not even for Man City, that is for sure. This is the Blue Moon Podcast. Follow us on Twitter at Blue Moon Podcast. Richard, would you agree with him that maybe Rodri doesn't do that if the referees controlled the game a bit better? Um, I'm not sure I would, um, because I think like if, if the incident had come following like a long period of being very frustrated at the referee or things feeling like they were boiling over, then explain would explain a bit more where that action from Rodri would come from. But it was so soon after half time that you'd think even if they were feeling that and sort of feeling it as Guardiola calls it, the chaos of it, I would think that's enough time for certainly a player of Rodri's experience to have calmed down and rationalised everything. But Especially like, after a 15 minute break. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I feel, I mean... I don't really remember, and maybe this speaks to a lot about my viewing of the game, I don't know, but I don't really remember feeling like it was a game that was threatening to boil over anyway. I would agree that it wasn't um, the finest example of refereeing you'll ever see, but I don't, I wasn't watching it thinking like this is a sort of tinderbox type atmosphere or, or match where somebody's going to get themselves sent off like you do sometimes sort of get that feeling where things are threatening to boil over and I don't think it really felt like that to me it was just a a bizarre moment of a well, lack of thought from Rodri because you know had he processed all the consequences of that action like everybody knows putting your hands to the throat is a, a red card you know that violent conduct is a three-game ban so on and so forth and I'm sure he's quite aware of his importance to the team then you know Knowing all of those things, he wouldn't do it, would he? But for some reason, that's such a... I mean, it seemed quite innocuous as a flashpoint as well on its own um, for him to react like that. And it's just a a moment of um, lack of clarity and 
over the top reaction to you know for whatever reason and now we pay the price for it but I, I i don't really lay that um i don't think rodri's got an excuse there i suppose is the the short version of what i'm trying to say it's all on him for a um a reaction how he did reaction yeah um dan the other thing that guardiola said in the press conference was uh like he, he voluntarily brought up kyle walker's red card at leipzig uh, a couple of years ago and um, Walker, after that red card, the suspension wasn't for a couple of months because of the the fact that it was the final group game and then heading into uh, into the knockout phase. Um, but he spent a few games on the bench, and I'm interested. Do you reckon there is there is room in the squad for Guardiola after the Arsenal game when Rodri would be back for him to just go? You know what? Have another game out. Just think about what you've done. <laughs> I suppose it depends how the next couple of games go, doesn't it, really? I'd be very surprised if uh, Rodri wasn't straight back in the team against Brighton, which is the game after the Arsenal game, I believe. Straight, straight back in for Leipzig, mate, in the middle of them all. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly, yeah, that, that one as well, um, because he's just so fundamentally important to the way City play. He's pretty much the only player, in fact, he is the only player we've got, I think, who, who can sort of single-handedly hold the midfield together. I think we're going to find out in the next couple of games that his... Uh, Perhaps we've already started to find out that the, the, the options that we have to replace him aren't nearly as good as Rodri. It's just so important to us that I don't know if uh, if he would get that same treatment from Guardiola. I don't think Guardiola was happy with him at all. You can see the reaction when he came off the pitch. Um, he mentioned that Rodri had apologised in the dressing room after the game, which I think is fair enough. But uh, yeah, it's just one of those things. We don't get red cards very often. I'm pretty sure that Guardiola tells his players to keep their emotions in check and, and, and don't do silly things that are going to get themselves sent off because it can be really costly. And hopefully it's going to be a long time before we see another red card now. Yeah. Um, just on the performance with uh, with 10 men, Richard, it was um, it was almost a masterclass in making nothing happen, wasn't it? Yeah. I um, There was a period where I was sort of thinking, well, if Forrest get a goal here, then this is going to be a long half. Um, and where it felt like they were putting some pressure on. But then after the game or as it goes on the more it, it definitely feels like oh actually City are managing this pretty well and like you say just just making nothing happen and, and completely shutting Forest out they didn't feel beyond maybe the sort of slight lifting momentum after the red card they didn't ever really feel threatening and I don't recall Edison making a save until that decent one in stoppage time or, or you know being really called into action so yeah it was really um, really good from City to make that happen and turn it into a bit of a what-we-have-we-hold situation. Yeah. Very impressive. As a member of the goalkeepers' union, I'm going to call that save excellent rather than decent <laughs> because I thought it was bloody good. Um, uh, Dan, it was it was interesting to see how Guardiola went about it because you think of... Um, I mean, we'll, we're going to hear later on about games where City have played really well uh, with 10 men, but you think of, of some of the other examples, like Fulham, essentially, last season, um, where he just carried on with the usual game plan. And with this one... He went like he basically said, "We're going to stick a big man up front, and we're going to make it stick at the other end by playing it long." And they went to a back five. They cut like just conceded space and territory, and just let kind of Forest have the have that, but made sure there was no danger at the other end. And it, it just, I found it quite interesting that that was his approach. And I wondered if it was basically because it was Rodri that was sent off. It was the man that like probably the worst player for City to have sent off. Yeah, control the game. Oh yeah, I think it definitely was. I think well, I think it was a you know it was a decent first half performance. I think it was a bit of a shame that what the red card same came so early in the second half that they had to immediately switch focus to just protecting the lead. But you know when you've got a two 0 lead, it's uh, it's a bit of a no brainer that you don't go chasing more goals with with ten men. It's a bit of a bit, bit of a foolish thing to do. And I think I think they protect protect it really well. They seem quite happy to let Forrest have the ball. 
just kicking it back to him at times, weren't they? And saying, go on, have another go. We'll, yeah. we'll, we'll protect our goal. Don't worry about it. I think the likes of Foden, Haaland, even Calvin Phillips when he came on were were good at chasing the ball down, chasing possession down. Haaland was holding it up really well. Grealish, when he came off the bench, did a really good job of, of keeping the ball and, and winning those little free kicks and, and alleviating a bit of pressure. And it just seemed like a, a really long game of football to me, like even the first half and especially the second half, it just seemed to go on for an eternity. But um, they got over the line, they kept the clean sheet. Edison played his part in that. And it was, excellent um, save, yeah. Yeah, it was a really good three points, yeah. Yeah. Um, Rick, let's talk about the goals then, the uh, the good stuff from that first half. Um, because it came, the red card and everything that followed came off the back of uh, two really nicely worked uh, goals. Um, Walker's role in the opener, uh, like the kind of awareness, Richard, to just touch that back to Foden was great, but it kind of made me realise Walker's been playing some of his best football for City this season. Yeah, I mean, he, Walker does genuinely seem to be getting better and better. And I, I think that's probably aided by the fact that like all the, all those things that players gain as they go through the career that like we talk about them so much for older players that they almost become a cliche, but like that the experience that he has, like I feel like almost in a way that you used to see it with Gundogan, like you can see his experience in the decisions that he makes and like it's it's not just a thing to say like oh he's an experienced player he knows how to deal with situations like I really feel like in passes that he plays or decisions that he makes and like whether it's to slow the game down or speed it up or like the right time to make a run he's so consistent with his he makes such consistently excellent decisions that it makes sense that his overall game continues to improve but what is almost I don't know if I can say it's unique but um, it's so unusual about Walker is that his pace hasn't gone anywhere. And so all those mm. other things that he has gained, there's not a trade-off of losing anything else alongside it. And I think that's really, really, it, it's just so formidable. Like is, I don't think you ever see him have a bad game. And that doesn't mean he's 10 out of 10 every game, but I don't think you ever see him like have an absolute stinker. It, it's, it's so long since I've thought that. Um like where I've, I've come away from a game thinking he was notably off the pace. I couldn't even, I'm sure there's been times where that's been the case and where he's had little um, patches of form that maybe weren't his best. And obviously, you know, he, he didn't play as regularly last season as um, as we've always been used to. But I, I still don't think I was coming away thinking he's had a shocker. But this year, whether it's the responsibility of wearing the armband, whether it's, knowing that City have shown how valued he is by fighting to keep him and, and all of those things, whether it's like an extra motivation, I don't know, but he's, um, he's, he's just an absolutely sensational footballer. He's really, he should be remembered and I think will be remembered in the, the real pantheon of City greats. He's probably yeah. the best to have ever played that position for the club. And that, like you say, is awareness. That, that touch for Foden was so good like that you expect your most your most creative players are the players that we've seen with those glorious first touches like Bernardo Mares. like you wouldn't if that ball's coming down you wouldn't necessarily be expecting them to cushion a ball that well down for a, a perfect assist so to see your right back doing it, it like so far with the pitch is just stunning absolutely stunning play yeah are we are we classing that as the ultimate team goal Dan 46 passes uh, <laughs> there were only two players in the team that didn't touch it do you know who they were Edison Nope. Um, no? Oh, nope. Edison, Edison, Edison had a touch in the build-up, yeah. 
Harlan probably. Harlan didn't touch it. Yep. <laughs> um, go on. Who's the other one then? Alvarez. Oh really? Oh, yeah. yeah. I uh, yeah. I went I went back and watched it last night and then wrote down every player that touched it as they as they did it because <laughs> I thought it might be one of them where everybody touched it. Uh, but no, Akanji had nine touches, Guardiola had nine touches, Diaz six, Nunes six, Doku four, Foden four, Rodri four, Walker four, and Edison one. Well. I'm going to be a bit of a killjoy about this goal because I'm not overly impressed by these. Like, oh, we racked up forty odd passes before the goal. Like, I, I feel All like right, City is so. Merchant. <laughs> but I feel like City <laughs> are so good at keeping the ball that if they didn't, if they weren't trying to score a goal, they could string a thousand passes together probably without the other team getting near it. And it's only really the sort of three touches leading up to the goal: the pass from Rodri to Walker, Walker's layoff, and Foden's finish that really sort of made any difference there, wasn't it? So. It's it's a nice start, but I don't know if it's that amazing of a goal in the lead up to it. If you All know right, what I mean. Killjoy. Um, how, about, how about the second goal? That was a good one, wasn't it? Please tell me it was. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was. It was a good goal. To be fair, yeah, lovely little um, run to the byline and cross cross back for from Nunes. And I always love to see Harlan getting his big head on it and then bashing it in like he did. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, Nunes, Richard. Um, he's been for for players that come into city and certainly in in central positions um like it's there's a lot of responsibility to take on he's very quietly just got on with it hasn't he yeah i th- i think like sort of one of the um I mean, I, I might say this later when we talk about the, the Newcastle game as well, but um, to borrow a phrase that I used talking about Calvin Phillips last night, one of the best things that you could say for Nunes in his first few games is that he looks normal in the team. And that's um, that's a huge compliment. And it's not... His performances have been better than Phillips against Newcastle, so I'm not making a direct comparison. But I think it would be very easy to come into the City team and look out of your depth or have a noticeably bad debut. And the immediate comparison there is uh, Doku against Fulham wasn't great. Um, And it was, I think people came away thinking, yeah, he had a couple of nice touches, but that's not really a very good debut for loads of justifiable circumstances. But Nunes has been absolutely nothing of the sort. He um, He just fits straight in. He's clearly technically very, very good on the ball good passing, good decision-making, um, the ball in for the goal, the, the cross to um, that landed on Haaland's head. Yes, from the byline, you know, lifting it into the box there probably isn't the hardest skill that he's ever going to have to display, but he still gets in and assists a goal after um, after some good link-up play and making a good run. So, yeah, I've been, um, I've been really, really impressed. There's not really anything that you would look at and, and obviously say he could have done a whole lot better in his first couple of games. I think he's an excellent gap filler, isn't he? That's kind of what we need. We don't need the best midfielder in the world. We need someone who's going to come in when we need someone to come in, basically. You know, when De Bruyne is back fit, it'd be interesting to see what happens to Nunes, how often he plays. But for now, he's he's coming into the team and doing a, doing a solid job every single time. I don't think he's going to get a great deal of goals. I don't think he's going to probably assist that many goals this season, but he's just there and he's just sort of the glue that kind of holds it together. And I think it's uh, it's been quietly impressive. The old-fashioned utility man. Mm. Yeah, yeah, the sort, the sort, like the sort of player who can do several jobs when needed. Yeah, um, nice Harlan to score as well, isn't it, Dan? Finally, <laughs> put, <laughs> yeah. put, put a chance in front of him. He's put one in. God, that was a while, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, well, it felt like it, didn't it? Yeah, it was for, for, by his standards. It, it was, it was a, a real drought. And uh, I mean, I've got this this ongoing theory with Harlan that he's actually not very good. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I mean good, good luck justifying this one. <laughs> 52 goals he scored last season. Imagine how many he could have scored if he was actually good at football. <laughs> Ask yourself that question. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
well, let's let's talk about what happened after the goal because um, obviously City go two 0 really early on, and then the first half kind of meanders to uh, to a close. And what interests me about it is Guardiola said this in the pre-match press conference, um, but he was he was talking about the Sheffield United game. I remember, for example, in Sheffield United, I was at home watching it after my surgery. I remember that uh, with zero one and played the ball without the intention to score a second, and at the end we conceded a goal. You know, a lot of passes. In the moment we consider all, the first two, three minutes we create two chances. This is the Blue Moon Podcast. Listen to it, drink it in. Now, we talked earlier on, Dan, about whether uh, the referee could have, have, have controlled the game better. And I'm wondering, did that just happen again? Did City just get kind of just passed with no intention? And that's how the game descended into a bit of chaos at the end of that first half. Yeah, they, they let the game drift a little bit in the first half, I think, didn't they? Um, which you, they do have a tendency to do now and again. It can be a little bit frustrating. You want them to just kind of go in for the kill, really. But... You know, after the halftime break, I don't know what Pep told them at halftime. I'm sure he didn't tell Rodri to get himself sent off. And you wonder if the approach to the second half might have been a bit different. And who's to say they wouldn't have gone on and scored a few more and, and you know, made, made it five or six nil in the second half if if that red card hadn't happened. I think the task at hand changed significantly when Rodri was sent off and, and pursuing more goals at that point would have been would have been pretty stupid. So I think the way they managed the game after the red card was pretty good. But I would like to see them yeah, really sort of hammering the point home at some sometimes when the when they're on top. Yeah, let's do that at Wolves this weekend. Um just briefly, Richard, uh obviously since the last podcast, City have now gone out of the Carabao Cup. Um what were your thoughts on the game at Newcastle? Because it, it was it was one of them where I think everybody was kind of all right if City went out, but then at the end of the game, everybody seemed really pissed off about it. Well, yeah, because you never you never want to lose a game, do you? Like, if you're there, you want to win it. And clearly they were trying to win it. And I thought the first half performance was reasonable without creating a whole lot. Um, it was City with a better team. But um, it feels strange to say they couldn't really live with Newcastle once Newcastle upped the tempo. Um, obviously, there's more to it than just upping the tempo. But they, they clearly came out... Um, with more urgency in the second half, I thought Newcastle yeah. intensity the, what, and aggression in the second half wasn't there. That yeah. wasn't there in the first. And, and one, once the tails were up and the the crowd were behind that, I think you could. And this is there's no way to say this without sounding um, a bit disrespectful. And I, I'm really not going down the route of um, the Carabao isn't important because you know I, I've loved every time we've won it, and I'd, I'd always rather win it than not. But I do think um, what came across on I, I watched it on the TV, but what came across from the atmosphere, I think, is. Newcastle are at a stage in what they are building um, where it was very clear that that game meant a lot more to them than it does to City. Um, and that's and they need complete. to win something, don't they? That's, that's yeah. what it is, yeah. And and it just leaves you wondering at the end of it, how how are we meant to compete with these state-owned clubs? It's <laughs> grossly unfair, but, you know, we um, we tried and that's just it's just the state of the game these days, isn't it? Uh, that's good. that's going to get us some tweets. Um, <laughs> uh, Dan, the, I, I suppose the headline from the Newcastle game was uh, certainly the first half performance of, uh, of Oscar Bob, he got a lot of praise. Um, how do you think he did? I thought he was really good. Yeah, really impressed. Um, I didn't expect to see him in the middle with Sergio Gomez out on the right wing, to be honest. That was a, a very strange uh, selection from Pep. That It worked all right, I think. I don't think Gomez had, uh, had his greatest game, but yeah, 
Bob was really good. I think like Rico Lewis, he seems to really understand his role in the team perfectly. Really intelligent players, really good at holding holding onto the ball and turning away from defenders into space. And uh, it's it's a shame. That's the big shame about going out of the Carabao, really, that he's not going to get as many opportunities now as um, as he might have done. But um, you know, it's never nice to go out of the the Carabao. We do love that competition. It's been a little while since we've we've won it now. But I think if if any season could be classed as um, a good one to go out early, and it's probably this one. Yeah. You know, with the, the Club World Cup being the same week as the quarterfinals, I don't know what we would have done if we'd even got that far field with the under twelves or something. Yeah, because you can't like, field any youngsters. They've all sold them. They've sold them all. This, this <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, exactly. Yeah, nobody else there in the reserves is there. Ad-free episodes are available on Patreon. Sign up at patreon.com forward slash blue moon podcast. Right, well, uh, take a look at the full-time score against Nottingham Forest on Saturday and it looks like a routine City win, even after the knowledge that Pep Guardiola's side had a player sent off very early in the second half. But 10v11, the display was pretty good, keeping the away team at arm's length for large spells. It got us thinking about City's best performances when on the receiving end of a red card. I've been speaking through them with City fan Kieran Murray, Niall Taylor from the Instagram account Retro City Goals, and first from StatCity.co.uk, Adam Carter. So in the 70 Premier League games that we've had a player sent off, we've gone on to win 20 of them. So it's not the end of the world when someone gets sent off, albeit a mountain to climb. Um, so yeah, that was that was the first one that like jumped out at me. And I think uh, Saturday was an example of that as well. Yeah. Um, I mean, just looking down, because you sent me the list of, of players that have uh, red cards. Um, it'd be no surprise to anyone, Richard Dunn is the most sent-off uh, <laughs> player, but joint with uh, Zabaleta and Fernandinho. Fernandinho, didn't he get like three of them in the space of like six weeks in Pep's first yeah. season? Yeah, well, he's just strangling everyone. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I remember he was the one on New Year's Day where uh, Pep was doing his Happy New Year stuff because he was sent off against Burnley on New Year's Day. Yeah, a wonderful season, just perfect. (laughs) And just harking back to those days, really, aren't we? Yeah. Yeah. Um, the other one that the other number you sent me that uh, jumped out was uh, fifteen red cards. It's, it's, this is Premier League, I assume. Yeah, Premier um, League complete. Yeah. Yeah, fifteen red cards uh, under Guardiola. Um, which, I, to be honest with you, like when you look at all the other managers in the Premier League, kind of makes sense. He's been the longest serving. Um, Thirteen under Mancini, which, which for the time he was at the club, <laughs> it's, a, it's a great record. That utterly bizarre that he uh, he only he only overtook Mancini like the, the beginning of last season. Like, that's <laughs> utterly bizarre. That just shows how rough we were under Mancini, I suppose. Yeah, the others, Keegan as well. But I, I, how much of Keegan is that first season in the in Division One when we just kept having players sent off and battering teams anyway? <laughs> love, love, and Benabia got sent off under Keegan as well, which was. Bizarre. I think he, he went twice actually. Yeah. Um, there was the one with Millwall at home when we won two 0 as well. So another win after going down to ten men. So we're just experts at it, really. Yeah. Um, the, the the earliest back we're going uh, for this is uh, we're going back to the nineteen ninety one season. Um, and uh, there's fans will remember the game. Um, City winning two one against Derby. Niall Quinn put City in front for one nil. Uh, Tony Copeland was then sent off for conceding a penalty on uh, Saunders. Quinn went in goal, saved the penalty. David White made it 2-0, Mick Hartford pulled one back later on and uh, Derby were relegated at full time. Um, Niall, this is a special day for you. It is indeed, yeah. I, I was born on this day. Uh, and, and that's not going to make people feel old. So, uh, <laughs> no, no. <laughs> yeah, uh, I was born 20th of April 1991. Um, you know what, I hadn't, I'd never seen 
the video of it. I'd never seen the uh, the actual highlights and and the penalty save, but I saw it for the first time about two years ago, and it's it's genuinely really good. Yeah, great it's, it's a really good <laughs> keeper save. Yeah. Um. But yeah, I was I was born, at, I believe. I'm not actually sure if it's true. Um. Sorry, I was named after Niall Quinn. Um. Or at least I told everybody up until the age of about 21 that I was named <laughs> after after Niall Quinn because he served a penalty on the day I was born. Yeah. Yeah. Good job you weren't weren't born on the day that we uh, we drew with QPR and Jamie Pollock scored. Eh? Um. <laughs> there's there's other uh, great red card uh, games where City have uh, have have put in a, a fine performance. Niall, there must be um. You have a cut off point, don't you, on your on your Instagram of where you will um kind of have goals from. Um, so some of these, some of these games, um, obviously happen after when, uh, when you're not deeming them as, uh, as retro city goals, uh, but some of them must be on there. And I'm thinking Ile Berkovic against Norwich in, in 2001 too. Yeah. That, so when you sort of the, the first one, oddly before any other game that we'll probably come on to that are, are far more sort of famous for us being down to 10 men. The first one I thought of was um, Danny Tiato being sent off at Main Road against Norwich, 2001-2002 season. In a season, like we've mentioned, that I think we had something like seven or eight, maybe more, red cards. Um, oddly, they always seem to be circular red cards as well. Which yeah, see yeah, don't see that at all. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'd forgotten about that. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm sure I've not imagined that. Um, without looking back, I'm pretty no, sure. No, there's circular that, red cards in the, uh, in the football museum. So it is, uh, yeah. I was there like last month, okay, see, and uh, and his daughter, and yeah, the the circular red cards are there. So if you're thinking it's in your imagination, they're actually preserved behind plate glass uh, (laughs) for everybody to witness and go, "Fuck hell, yeah, that was true." Well, I so this is a a constant thing uh, on my Twitter feed about why we have circular red cards. So uh, while we do this, I so years and years ago, I asked Mark Halsey. Uh, why the referees had uh, circular red cards. Because I thought, I was thinking, like my dad always used to say, it was in case that when they were feeling around in the pocket, they knew which one was the red one and which one was the yellow one. And I was like, surely if the referee just pulls the wrong card out, he puts it back and takes the other one out. He doesn't doesn't go, well, I've got the red out now. (laughs) Going to have to send you off now. Um, And so I I messaged Mark Halsey about it and, and said, just a quick one, wondered if you could shed some light on this. We were chatting about yellow and red cards last night. Is there a reason why referees have circular red cards and Mark's answer was it's the choice of the referee oh that's all I got the choice of the referee so there's literally there may literally be no reason why some refs have a a circular red card I always think of Uriah Rennie with a with a circular one I don't know why just maverick decision making on on (laughs) the part of the ref (laughs) I I always thought it might have been because um well red wants that if if you've got colorblind fans there between the two, ah, which yeah. is completely logical, but then if you might just have some referees that don't go about colorblind fans, yeah. you think no, I saw it. I, 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 I assumed it was so that angry, uh, angry players who'd just been sent off couldn't rip it off you and poke your eye out. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, so you, the smooth, the smooth, the edges round. Yeah, the, it's a, it's a, what it is. Is it's a, it's a safety square, isn't it? A circle. That's what yeah. it is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, we've we've drifted away from the point already, but um, Norwich at home, Kieran, uh, in in two thousand and one two that that season of um, under Keegan City were like they were so good, and 
they were able to beat teams by going down to 10 men early on. So, you know, Adam's already mentioned the Banabia one was in, I, I can't remember what minute it was, but it was single figures. Seventh um, minute. Seven, yeah, seventh minute. Tiato here sent off on the 12th minute. City still run out 3-1 winners against Norwich. It, like, that City side was just so good at it, wasn't it? Oh, yeah, absolutely amazing. I think Dan was talking last week in the pod, wasn't he? Um, just the entertainment factor. Um, that feature you did about Banabia last week was just... It just brought back so many good memories of that season, and then when you think about the times we were up against it and with the sending off, it was. There's been a lot of talk about jeopardy at the minute under under Guardiola, and mm. I think the Rodri sending off um, and going going uh, a goal down to both West Ham and Red Star last week. You know, it it makes it kind of exciting again, and it, it almost felt like uh, Keegan City were streets ahead. So um, having a little bit of jeopardy and and. Uh, getting players sent off or uh, just completely abandoning defensive duties. It was just, <laughs> at least there was a little bit of added jeopardy. Um, Tiata was pretty hyped up for the 12th minute in that, if you watch it back. Like, it was a, <laughs> it, it, it was a, it was a decent old sending off. He, he had uh, he had the shirt by both hands. Like, and he wellied really him, really didn't he? Yeah, he absolutely up. lamped him, didn't he? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but... Uh, then, then the water bottles got it say, as well. Don't forget, don't forget yes, the water bottles. Yes, oh my <laughs> god, that was. And Keegan had to escort him down the tunnel, didn't he? Um, yeah, he was pretty fired up. Like, uh, yeah. but yeah, no, it was a great season, and it's always nice as this feature uh, celebrates. It's always nice when uh, you play well, despite or maybe because of the sending off. Yeah, uh, Niall, that that Berkovich goal that I think of from that game, that must be on your Instagram, is it? Yeah, definitely. Definitely, I think I think all the goals from that game are, are on there. Um, and I was, I was trying to think of uh, why this particular sending off and game sort of sprung to mind for me, <clears throat> over analysing as, as usual. Um, and I think it's because this was probably the first time I see go down to ten men and then go on and just win anyway. Um, I know there was probably some jeopardy within that game and, and Norwich weren't a bad team. I think they'd already beaten us that year anyway. But under Royal, the sort of previous two or three seasons, I think if we got a man sent off, it was generally later on in the game and sort of condemned us. But um, in sort of my lifetime growing up and mid to late 90s, um, it was probably the first time that City were, I want to say, just not affected by it. Um, yeah. I could be wrong, Adam might correct me and tell me there was a, an incident in like, Division 2 or something, but from memory, I think this was the first time. And and Seattle, would, he, he was he was brilliant, but he was a bit of a dirty bastard, let's be honest. <laughs> <laughs> he, he had it in him. Yeah. Um, and, and there's a brilliant interview with him on, on YouTube, I think, the following season. And he explained that sort of Kevin Keegan had spoken to him and said... Um, you know, look, I can't afford to have you missing games. I can't afford you to be, you know, to get sent off. And um, we need everybody in the squad and, and and what have you. And then it just cuts immediately to coming on against Blackburn. He's been on the I think he's been on the field for two minutes and then two foots David Thompson. It's like, right, no, man, you, you're going next season, pal. Um, speaking of dirty bastards, Adam, um, City. I mean, the classic City performance with ten men um, is is probably the FA Cup game at Spurs in 2004. Three nil down. Joey Barton gets himself gets himself sent off at half time. Second half, this damn 48th minute. Bolsfeld 61st minute. Uh, right, Phillips 80th minute. Mack and 90th minute. You can't like that must be I, I like i'd go as far to say that might be the all-time performance by any team ever with 10 men 
with 10 men. Yeah, I think it's almost a galvanizing factor, isn't it, when you go down to mm. 10 men? And that's, I think, what the common theme is when you ask me to look at 10 men games or some, some nine men games in, on three occasions. Um, it's just it's that galvanizing factor, and it almost presents a better story. Not, not uh, just not okay with just being 3 0 down at halftime. We needed to be 3 0 down and a man down at halftime to make the story even better. So I think, if, had, had we not been up against it that much, I don't know how much of the comeback is actually, you know, how much we deliver on the comeback. It's just perfect to be able to say, and we were ten, and we were a man down as well. So it just another box ticked in the in the fairy tale comeback column. Yeah, eleven v eleven, too easy, isn't it, to uh, to sort that one out? So um, I mean, <laughs> did you want to say you've done a heaven and hell episode on uh, on Spurs and included this game? Um, did you honestly like give up on it at, at half time when you when you heard that Barton had been sent off? Yeah, and I was uh, listening to it on the radio, I think, at the time. And it, it was like, because he got sent off at, at, at dead on half-time, it wasn't confirmed until like halfway through half-time. So it was even more like, oh, well, we're 3-0 down. We've got nothing to look forward to. Then you, you won't, it, it was almost another <laughs> hammer blow because it was like 10 minutes after the event that you, you then get realised actually we're coming out in the second half with 10 men. So absolutely, the, the, all the hope that was draining had absolutely drained by the time we'd, we'd received that news as well. So gave up all hope, but what a comeback. And just, I think Niles hit the nail on the head then. Most of most of the times when we go down to 10 men, we're usually condemned, but recently it's been absolutely the galvanising facts that we need. I think of Fulham last season, but more importantly, that, that Spurs game was just fairy tale stuff and mm. it's weird a psycho part of me actually likes the jeopardy of it it's even though i'm the worst negative city fan you'll ever meet uh the jeopardy kind of goes hand in hand with it it's very very weird yeah Aaron, <laughs> um obviously for uh, for the stuart pierce era which followed the keegan era there uh, mm. going down to 10 men was uh usually the the death knell of a game because being 11 on 11 was quite bad anyway um <laughs> yeah. but uh like you, you, the takeover happens <laughs> you know the the thing things are moving on um we get to the the 12 13 season the 11 12 season where city won the title that I, I can't remember remember that many red cards in that season um yeah. so I, I suspect they were they were quite well behaved but the season after as reigning champions there were two games where um city put in really really good performances after somebody was sent off and the first one that i that i think of immediately is west brom when uh, milner was sent off for denying a goal scoring opportunity um nil nil at the time 23 minutes sent off uh shane long scores in the second half and eddie jacko comes off the bench to score to, to score twice and it was that was the celebration where i think he's he's on his knees in front of the city fans shirt off and like everyone's yeah. piled on top it's a brilliant day yeah yeah uh i was on my way to the airport um, when that match was going on because i was going to uh Krakow, i believe um it was in and around my half term and uh, so I was trying to follow it on my phone and, and getting texts from friends and things. Uh, and when you saw that Milner was sent off, it just it, it looked pretty bad. Um, he was he was such a key figure at that at that time in that Mancini side. Um, so yeah, it was a bit concerning. And then going one down, you're just thinking, oh, we're doomed here. Like, uh, and then yeah, all, all mighty celebrations. We just a, a little bit like. Um, 
well, vastly different, but, you know, kind of turning into a counter-attacking team, like I suppose Pep's City tried to do mm. on Saturday. But that, um, that winning, that Dzeko winning goal, honestly, oh, I mean, the fact that it, it came off the back of Hart saving from Lukaku's overhead kick. That's right, yeah. And then, shot, yeah. yeah, but then after that, that, that move, there's the moment when Aguero gets the ball on the right flank and you see Dzeko steaming through and you're like, just put yeah. it in that space, go on, put it in that space. And he first time finishes it from outside the box. Yeah. Well, he didn't take it easily, did he? Yeah, yeah, no, he didn't. And this, the, like the talk about the limbs, don't they? That the limbs that they were absolutely incredible. And anybody who is an away fan who was lucky enough to be there, they, you know, they still talk about it very fondly on Twitter when it's like the anniversary or when it comes up or when we're talking about kind of comeback goals later on. Um, yeah, it was absolutely incredible. It's sad the way that season sort of went overall because there were there were moments of real fight and um, weren't a gorgeous kind of full maroon kit that day as well. Um, I just, yeah, I've really fond memories of catching up on it and going, yeah, we we, we got awful one there, but um, what a way to do it. Mm, yeah. And later that season, Niall, um, there was the, the Norwich game at Carrow Road where everything seems to be going perfectly well. 2-0 up after four minutes. Okay, it slips to 2-1 after 15 minutes. Then right on halftime, Sammy and Asri goes, needs a bit more jeopardy this game and head headbutts Sebastian Bassong for no reason. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I'd completely forgotten that we were down to 10 men in this game. I thought a mad one against Norwich around Christmas time, but um, I look back at the team today and it makes complete sense that Nasri, sort of around Christmas time, there's a lot of games, it's a bit cold, he's thought, I want, I want a week <laughs> off here. Um, we're 2-0 up, or we're 2-1 up. Let's, <laughs> I'm putting my feet up. But yeah, I, I remember that game quite well, other than the, the sending off. And mm. I think Jekyll scored what feels like in well, and goal sort of twice sort of long ball knocked down over the top and he, he placed it inside footed it in um and then yeah there was it was it not was it just before half time that Nasri got sent off yeah and then sort of immediately after the well immediately in the second half Aguero scored uh, a really good goal if I remember Beautiful. rightly and yeah. then we just managed the game quite well um and then yeah it it, it Kieran said that the season sort of went away and and pass it off into nothingness but there's two examples there of us I think after winning the league showing um, a bit of sort of steel that I I wrongly because of what I grew up with always associated with United and Fergie especially that every time they had either something go against them or they went a man down or they were 2-0 down and to come back and win and I think this was City sort of finding the feet as as sort of reigning champions, if you will. I know we didn't return it that year, and, and it and it fell apart in the FA Cup and whatnot. But I think we were finding our feet and and understanding what it meant to be champions and what you had to do to get through games like West Brom away, who I think finished top eight that season. They were really good team. Did, yeah. Norwich, who, you know, they've they've always been for us, and, and we we have strange games against Norwich. We can thump them seven nil and then draw nil nil. Sort of six weeks later, so. Yeah, um, completely forgot that we, we were down to 10 men, which makes that result on reflection e- even more impressive. Yeah, a, a real impressive one, Adam. And uh, when I said we were doing this, uh, this is the first name that you sent to me. Uh, Hull, 2014. Um, yeah. Vincent Company sent off 10 minutes in. City desperately chasing Liverpool for that title. And uh, you go, oh, for Christ's sake, he's been sent off. Why, why has he done that? Just let him score and we'll deal with it after that. But no. Yeah, I remember me being the drama queen that I am as well. Instantly um, went onto Twitter uh, and said, "Oh, he's going to miss the next three games as well," like, and, and reeled off the fixtures that were coming up. I think we had, um, I got, I got it wrong, and 
I thought it was just going to be a three-match ban and we had United nope. coming up and I was like, he misses United, he misses this, he misses that. So I'm no. already like... Denial of a goal-scoring opportunity, one-match ban, that's all you need to know. Yeah, Unless exactly. it's your second so, one and it's a, a two-match ban. Yeah, so me being being the drama queen, like I say, oh, he misses Fulham at home, he misses United away, it's all going wrong, we're trying to catch Liverpool. So in my haste, I've, I've and I brought about another 50 fans down with me in my mire, and then the performance that followed was absolute game management perfection. Now, we're used to managing games now under Pep, but I think that was the first time that we'd properly seen a game out. And we almost just said, right, nothing else is happening in this game now, apart from us taking control and and winning it. I remember companies storming off down the tunnel and kicking... Oh, we kicked something, like a board or something, didn't they? Yeah, the signage signage had gone everywhere. And I just thought, that... If this is another season that's falling apart here. Like you look, we echo back to the previous one that kind of petered out, and I thought it's happening again. And then that gate, I just remember Silva just putting it in the top corner, perfect goal, dragging us back into it, and then Jeko scoring at the end of at the other end at the end of the game. And I just thought, wow, we've actually snatched it the other way around. Usually, usually we we can uh, hand it to the opponent, but this was the first time I really thought actually. We've got something about us here. When the chips are down, we've actually stood up to be counted. Mm. So perfect, perfect. And that was the first one that came to mind. I just love it. Yeah. Kieran, that was that game, I don't know if you remember, was a coming of age for Martin Di Michaelis. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I do remember that. It just mastering the kind of offside trap and yeah. marshalling his, the defence. Yeah. His arm was attached to the assistant's flag. I'm almost certain of it. Every time yeah. his arm went up, the flag <laughs> went up. It had to have been. Well, I always think that was like one of David Silva's best individual performances, if not his actual best. I think I've said that on the podcast before. It just really, really, really stood out that he was, you know, head and shoulders above everybody else on the pitch and, and dragging City through it. But yeah, Dean Michaelis at the, uh, Dean Michaelis at the back end of the pitch just stood up and, and knew what he needed to do and then like a couple of months later he's he's running along the touchline at the Etihad with the Premier League trophy <laughs> in his hand so I mean uh, yeah it, it paid off and then of course the Titanic music was put over the top and the rest is history yeah um, I'm going to give you all a chance to comment on the uh, the final game that I've got on the list for um, games where City have played really well when down to 10 men because I think it I think ultimately it is probably the perfect performance of a game where City were down to 10 men. And Niall Fulham last season, uh, 1-0 up through Julian Alvarez. Cancelo sent off for conceding. I mean, it's a daft penalty uh, in the end. Um, 26 minutes, which Fulham scored. And OK, it took a last-minute winner. And I, but I remember thinking throughout the game, even if they don't win this, this has been a brilliant performance. Yeah, I, I, I've written down that this one felt different to the other ones for me. And um, we touched on it earlier. I sort of almost embraced that sending off as a fan. And I didn't, but um, I had trust in Pep and the players that were on the pitch and they understood the task that they sort of had to fulfil at that point. You know, I think we, we, from looking, we we didn't bring a defender on. Pep didn't really change any bodies until I think like the 80th minute or something like that. We ended up uh, just resetting the shape, which, which, Pep does anyway. Thinking at the time, just get to half time, don't concede. Pep will sort it out at half time. We've got plenty of leaders on that pitch. We've got plenty of decent players on that pitch. And even, you know, had we got to the end of the game and, and lost, perhaps I probably wouldn't have been too happy. Even if we only would have taken a point on that, on that game, I think most of the fans would have gone away happy. But then 
uh, we had the uh, the weapon on the bench, Harland, who comes on back from injury, I think he was, and, and all he has to do is uh, put a penalty in at that point. Um, oh, he's not fit. He's not fit. He's gonna he's gonna miss. He's gonna fall over and miss the penalty or something. Now after all the hard work, and uh, yeah, how wrong I was. It just it it that, that game for me. I, I wouldn't say it sort of confirmed that we were gonna win the league or anything like that. But I just had real trust in Pep, and not that I doubted him at any point. The players on that day, for me, really really uh, sort of stood up and, and and dealt with that that particular game. Um, and as I said and I mentioned earlier, I, it felt different and I'm not going to invite City to get a man sent off every time we're playing somebody at <laughs> home that we that we expect to, to expect to beat but uh yeah I think that was a bit of a, a bit of not not a turning point or anything but a, a sort of a, a landmark in in that season yeah Adam um I mean Niall said all Haaland had to do was come off the bench and score a penalty um he, he tried his best to miss it didn't he, he wasn't his cleanest <laughs> yeah just snuck <laughs> over the line didn't it but I think the euphoria carried it over and the the everyone's sucking it into the net I think for me like Niall said there I agree he did, he brought Ruben Diaz on in the 89th minute now he's got Diaz, Laporte, Gomez, Lewis on the bench that he could have turned to just to kind of salvage a point where it would have been at that point. Uh, and he didn't turn to that. He decided that he was going to stick to his guns, stick to the way we play. And arguably Fulham were a better side than Forrest we faced at the weekend. And this weekend he went for that defensive approach. So it just shows where we were in our kind of transition under Pep in that that was the, the the tools that he had on that day. He still stuck to his attacking threat. And that's what I remember from that game, because we still carried the canter and we didn't just shut up shop and just put everyone behind the ball and hope for the best. And that we, we carried on playing and we kept them uh, at bay. And obviously Pep's lap of honour at the end just shows how important, highlights how important that was in the grand scheme of things. I think he knew that then as well. Yeah, I was going to say that, Kieran. My my abiding memory of the game is just how much they celebrated the win at the end of it, and Pep's um, lap of honour at the end. Like they hadn't announced the new contract by then. They actually they did it a few weeks later during the World Cup. Mm. But I like I remember saying on the podcast that week, "Tell me you're signing a new contract without telling me you're signing a new contract." That that was the moment, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah, I'm pretty sure it was bonfire night, and I, I couldn't make it because I'd made sort of prior arrangements. I was really like sort of looked at it and was like, oh, it's, it's Fulham. Surely it'll just be a sort of like fairly routine victory. And then it's talked about basically like every week on Let Me Talk and uh, Blue Moon. <laughs> and I, I die a little bit inside every time it's mentioned because it was such a pivotal moment of last season, like the treble winning season. Um, an absolute like monumental kind of kind of feat and uh, to come from well, to go from uh, a drawn position to win so late on so dramatically um, and then for the players to have that lap of honour and then for Pep to kind of sign on. And I think he did cite how um, that that victory and how, how much it meant to him and stuff. So I really, really, really wish I was there. Uh, I was dead glad I was there for Rodri sending off and the atmosphere was great. Um, but yeah, the Fulham one absolutely was different, yeah. And... Bernardo Silva had the game of his life that day as well. I mean, I know we'll always hold the Liverpool performances up in high regard with him, but he was absolutely everywhere. 
Um, talking about yeah. galvanizing the player, it certainly mm. galvanized Silva that day. What an absolute line that is as well. Uh, I'm glad I was there for Rodri sending off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, this is what I'm, this is what I'm telling you, lads. Uh, Jeopardy is the in thing at the minute. After you yeah. treble, you, you, want to, you, you want to go a couple of goals down, or you want a player sent off, and then all of a sudden, because it, it can be just a bit, you can be a bit lax in the in at the ground because. You know, it feels like we've completed football. Uh, and at, at, at the minute, it's so exciting watching the new signings bed in, the new style take shape, and mm. and watching how City get out of these problems of having basically no players in the squad. Uh, <laughs> everybody falling injured, getting sent off. Even our manager with a sore back being out for two games. It's just like, what more can happen? And it's just jeopardy, jeopardy, jeopardy. That's what's keeping you on the edge of your seat these days. Like. <laughs> If you enjoy the show, please give it a rating and a review wherever you get your podcasts. That was a look at City's best performances after having a player sent off. Um, Time now to look ahead to the games against Wolves and Leipzig, uh, two away trips uh, this week. And I guess, uh, Richard, the big question is going to be, how does Guardiola set up without Rodri for this one? Because it's not a game against Newcastle in the Carabao. It'd be great, wouldn't it, if Calvin Phillips could come in and like, this be the start of his sort of second season at City thing that happens for so many other players. Um, I'm not sure that what we've seen since Rodri's suspension um, is very strong evidence that that's going to happen. Um, mm. So given that I don't think Phillips will start at Arsenal because that's a really key and really, really difficult game and... Um, I just don't think from what we've seen and more importantly, what we've not seen, because that is a, a body of evidence in itself. Uh, I don't think that he's the right player to play at Arsenal. So Nunes, Kovacic are the the obvious players to step in from our pretty limited um, squad choices. Yeah, And that feels like good prep for Arsenal just to sort of get that underway now and, and have them ease into that. Ease into that relationship. It's not um, not the best sentence I've ever put together. Right. <laughs> I mean, it was complete though. Subject, verb, object. We'll, we'll take that. Um, Dan for for Phillips um, because obviously he played against Newcastle. He came on mm. uh, against Forest. Um, and if the if the suggestion is that Guardiola needs to look ahead to the Arsenal game and how he'll how he'll do that without Rodri. Um, if Phillips is, if it's decided that Phillips is of the standard that City won, and they'll play him against um, uh, Wolves, then surely that should also mean he should feature in the Arsenal game. It's like it, it, there's, there, there shouldn't be this division where like it's, it, he, he's good enough for one but not the other. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, I, I would like to see him given a chance against Wolves because I think he deserves a chance. Not based on performance necessarily, but just because he's been there, you know, he's he's not kicked up a fuss about not playing. He's he's had a positive attitude. He seems like a nice guy. I'd like to see him give a chance. I'd like to see him give it a run of games as well, because I think he needs that to have any chance of kickstarting his city career. But I just don't see that happening. And and realistically, what does his city career look like? He's constantly being compared to Rodri, who's the best defensive midfielder in the world. Phillips is never going to be as good as Rodri. So he could score a hat-trick at the Emirates and probably for the Brighton game, he'd still go, yeah, Rodri's first name on the team sheet because he's the best in the world. And, you know, Phillips is always going to be compared to him. And I think that the signing made sense at the time to bring in someone who can fill in for Rodri. We can give Rodri a rest. You know, Phillips is a, is a quality player. He's an international footballer. He's a, he's a good player. 
and it's been a bit of a humiliating experience for him. And I wonder if that transfer was was properly thought through, really. Or maybe he knew what he was signing up for when he joined the club and he, and he doesn't mind playing very often. Maybe they've said to him, come in, you'll play very occasionally. You'll get the easiest medals you're ever going to win in your entire career. But then you see before the, uh, before the game the other night, he'd sort of said, he was quoted as saying, um, this is like my chance now to really make an impact and, and the best chance that I'm probably going to get. And I, I find that quite sad for him to feel that this is the most important period in his City career because I think he's a bit deluded, to be honest, if he thinks he's ever going to play regularly while Rodri's around. His best chance is Rodri getting an ACL injury. And even then, you wouldn't, you wouldn't, it wouldn't be surprised if Pep found some other solution and that didn't involve Calvin Phillips. So, I just don't see what I just don't see what he can do to possibly cement his place in the team and and, yeah. and flourish. Yeah, um, he started uh, two Premier League games for City, uh, both of them last season after the title was won. He started that Chelsea game where they received the trophy and the Brentford game on the final day, and it's it, it's almost like a baptism of fire, Richard, just to to chuck him in in for a game that like it, it sounds awful, but it's a league game that means something that he's not had at City yet. Yeah, I. Um... I would agree with almost everything Dan said um, in relation to sort of Phillips standing at City, but all of that leads me to um, leads me to think that I like I don't particularly want to see him have a run of games. Like I'd, <laughs> I'd I would love when I say that. Like obviously, with any player at City, like the preferred preferred outcome is that they will be a good signing and that they will be able to have a run of games. And like on a personal level, I feel very sorry for Calvin Phillips because it's all well and good collecting the medals and, you know, he'll be very adequately paid for basically turning up training and, and sitting on the bench. Like that is his, his sort of role at the moment. And so it's not sympathy in that sense, but sympathy from a career point of view. I'm sure he did join expecting to play more football than um, than he has done. I think it's a very difficult position whereby um, I, I think that sort of central defensive midfielder position is not one that you would necessarily look to rotate all the time anyway, because I think there's so much that defenders behind you get used to um, and, and take confidence from having a strong player in that position. And I think, again, obviously, like, you know, it's Rodri speaks for itself. He, he's not going to be rotated um I'm sure they'd like to rotate him more, but it's not like he's going to be um, missing like three, four games in a row just for a rest, like ever. And and I think we can read a lot when I say like the what we've not seen is its own body of evidence. Like Gomez and Cole Palmer last season, who like City or Pep didn't really fancy last season, were still getting game time. And I know Phillips was sort of in that trio of players who who might come on as substitutes if a game was wrapped up. But I don't know. It's just, I think how little he has been used is quite unusual. Mm. And I think that speaks for itself. And Peppers, I don't think he's very hard to read on the Phillips situation. He knows that uh, or feels that he's not up to the job that he wants from a City player. And that, that doesn't mean that Phillips is bad. It doesn't mean that he shouldn't stay. It doesn't mean that he shouldn't ever get a chance. But if he's not been trusted for this long, then I think it is optimistic in the extreme to think that he would come in for a run of games and and really prove his worth to the team. And it'd be great if he could, but I just, I think we're so far down the road with this one that is, I think that how Dan has outlined his city career is, um, is right, but 
you know, I personally think the best outcome is probably that he goes and starts his career elsewhere at the first opportunity, but obviously that that hasn't happened. Yeah, you never know though. Like, there's I can't think of any examples off the top of my head, but um, sometimes when you're backed into a corner like this and and City don't have many other options, it it kind of comes in and, and all works out. You never know. I'd absolutely love you to be right. I'd be very very happy um, to be to be wrong on this one. I just think we can see far back enough to be able to sort of extrapolate that into the into the future as well. My prediction is that if he does start against Wolves this weekend, he, he has an OK game and, and maybe is then in the conversation for starting against Arsenal. But he's not going to be, he's not going to usurp Rodri because Rodri does the, the job of basically two players and mm. he's so fundamental to the way that City play. And uh, Phillips is just not a, a replacement for that whatsoever, unfortunately. Mm. Um, the other player I wanted to talk about after Wednesday night was uh, Jack Grealish because um, Dan, he seems to have. It seems like everybody's gone in on Grealish for not being Doku, and <laughs> I, I, I kind of wonder why because like he was just back from injury. Um, he clearly does a different job to what Doku does, and yet, kind of all I was seeing after the Newcastle game was uh, like Doku showing Grealish how to how to be a winger at City. It's like, like that <laughs> surely isn't the case. Football fans are so fickle, aren't they? Bloody hell. <laughs> I, I, I will fight anyone who is criticising Jack Grealish at this point because I think he's got so much credit in the bank after the season that he had last year that I, I just find that utterly baffling. I think he he came on against Forest and did a, did a job. I thought he, he was fine against Newcastle. Obviously, the attack was blunted uh, very much so. I think that was more the case not to do with with Grealish, but City just lacks a bit of a kind of fearsome presence in, in the box that, that Harlem brings. Um, I don't think that Alvarez as the lone striker really uh, makes defenders think in, in the way that Harlem does and that, that has an effect elsewhere. I mean, I've, I've really enjoyed what I've seen from Doku. I thought he had an impact when he came on against Newcastle even, but I think Grealish has become so essential to, to how City play, controlling the tempo and all that kind of thing that he's just, you know, he's beyond reproach for me at the moment. And I think Doku is a really good moments player, a player that we've we've needed for a little while, a player that we've that we're gonna get some some joy out of. But I think Grealish is a really good system player and I think City fans should know by now that it's it's the system more than those little moments that have got us where we are today. And that's why Grealish is is one of Guardiola's favourite players. And I would love at some point, hopefully even starting this weekend, to see Grealish on the left, Doku on the right and Foden down the middle, um, which I think means you probably have to bench Alvarez, unfortunately, but um, perhaps he's uh, he's due uh, a, t- a bit of time out of the team. Yeah. Um, it is possible, isn't it, Richard, to, uh, as a City fan, to like Grealish and to like Doku. Like, they're, they're not mutually <laughs> no! exclusive positions. <laughs> I can't believe you'd even suggest that, David. <laughs> Are you yeah. Team Grealish or Team Doku, Richard? Come on. Yeah, call us to the master, Mike. Uh, Grealish on the left, Doku on the right. Oh, I'm still team bridge, to be fair. But, yeah. <laughs> no, um, yeah, it's it's a squad game. Like I, I don't think you can acknowledge that City have quite a small squad this season, and then like be aghast at having players who play similar positions with different attributes. And, yeah. and I think In that's different ways. Of, <laughs> yeah, and I think like I, I think you're sort of opening to this was along the lines of. People seem to have gone on, gone in on Grealish. Why? And my sort of take on that would be, it's just sort of the internet, isn't it? And and like people needing to have extreme opinions quite quickly, mixed with the fact that fast, fast wingers who take on a fullback are always going to excite fans more than a player who holds onto the ball and can sometimes be quite slow paced, but. 
what Grealish did last season was so fundamental to City's success. And like he, he was hugely important in winning the treble. He's an extremely talented player um, who's got a huge amount to offer City. Like <laughs> Doku doesn't change that. He just gives City options. Um, and that's, that's a really good thing. So I, I think I, I'm wary of um, thinking too much of what, Sort of some of the online criticism of Grealish is because I don't think that's necessarily reflective of what a lot of people would see in his game or sort of rationally view his situation at City. Yeah. Um, I, by the way, am Team Alvarez. I can't believe you're suggesting the man who's uh, scoring and assisting week after week. You, you want him out of the team, Dan? I can't believe that. No, I, I love I love Alvarez, to be fair, but I'm just thinking something's got to give in terms of trying to get Grealish, Doku, and Foden in the, in the same team. So I think it's Alvarez has got to drop out, unfortunately. Yeah, well, on your head be it. Um, <laughs> let's get a view now from the Wolves camp. I've been speaking to Dave Azapardi from Talking Wolves to find out what's happening at Molyneux this season. Yeah, it's been a it's been a strange season. Like you said, the season of change. Um, it, it's, it could have gone, well, it should have gone a lot better, really. I think it's been a frustrating start for Wolves fans. Um, obviously, Gary O'Neill came in really, really late, um, just before our first game of the season against Manchester United. And, you know, although we lost that game, um, obviously it was a Monday night football. A lot of people were able to watch that game and felt that Wolves should have got more from the match. Um, but, yeah, that it, we've only got one win in the league so far. And that was against Everton, where it wasn't a great performance. You know, we drew against Luton last weekend, their first point in the Premier League. So it's just been frustrating for Wolves fans. But we have had some tough games. we played United. We've already played Brighton and Liverpool. Um, I think it's important for Gary O'Neill just to try and keep his head above water at the moment. But yeah, fans are starting to already get a little bit frustrated, especially after our uh, Carabao Cup defeat last night too. Yeah, is it one of those things of, I mean, like you say, you've played United, you've played Liverpool, you've got City this weekend. Is it just a case of, look, get through these and, and target the games that we that that we need to target to stay up, if that makes sense? Yeah, and I think I think that's the frustrating thing for O'Neill is that obviously people are already, you know, going for him. But, you know, I think everybody, even under Lopetegui, we looked at that fixture list and thought, wow, up until sort of late October, November, we've got a really tricky start to the season. So... I think the club, you know, the club aren't stupid enough. They'll realise that as well. Um, I think there's an international break in November as well. So that's probably a good time for him to assess where he's at. Um, but just before then, like you said, you know, we've got some on paper, more straightforward games. We play the teams that are going to be in and around the bottom half of the table. And I think that's as fans, that's what we've got to be patient for. Yeah, um, just for obviously because our focus hasn't been Wolves for uh, for, for the summer. Um, just talk us through kind of how it got to this stage because um, obviously Lopetegui was was in place, and then there was there was a lot of lot of um, kind of. What's the right word? It, it, uh, uncertainty about what mm. uh, what would happen in, in the summer. And then obviously he leaves quite late on. Um, wh- what happened around that? Why did that all come about? So it was sort of towards the end of last season, actually, where it sort of come come to light that Wolves financially weren't in a great place. Um, you know, and even last season, we had to spend massively during January just to get Lopetegui a decent squad, really, and, and to keep us in the Premier League, which he did. Um, and Lopetegui, you know, raised concerns about that before the season had even ended, and then it took a long, long time. Uh, you know, was, he was saying from day one, really, as soon as that news came out, his future was uncertain. Took him about a month to come out and say, you know what, I'm happy with the direction the club wants to go in and I'll, I'll stay put. And then for one reason or another, you know, he changed his mind again so late in the pre-season. I don't know whether that was because, you know, he wasn't getting his own way or there wasn't any incomings, but 
for me as a fan, I knew that was going to happen at the start of the summer. So I don't know what changed behind the scenes for Lopetegui to change his mind so quickly. So obviously left Wolves in a bit of a difficult position. I think Lopetegui said to the club, look, I'll, I'll look after the players for another week or so, but use this time to, to basically look for, you know, the next the next head coach. And Gary O'Neill was the best of the interview interviewed managers, apparently. And, um, you know... It's frustrating because I think if you asked any Wolves fan at the time, who do you want to be the next Wolves head coach? I don't think Gary O'Neill would have been the answer. Yeah. And I don't mean that in a disrespectful way to him, but, you know, he did an okay job at Bournemouth. But I think with where Wolves have been, you know, in Europe over the last few years, we need to be aiming a little bit higher than that. And uh, that's why I think straight away there was a lot of pressure on him because a lot of the fan base didn't really want him at the club anyway. And that's why I think he's uh, he's, gonna, he's being judged at the moment even more than than he probably should be. Yeah, and then when you look at, at the business that Wolves did over the summer, um, I mean, the vast majority of it is outgoing, and mm-hmm. you know, you, you you've lost Ruben Neves, um, that was forty-seven million. Matthias Nunes, obviously, to City for for over fifty, about fifty-three million. Um, a couple of other big transfers in there as well. Nathan Collins, twenty-three million. It's like, it, 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 was that necessary in the end? I think when the news had come out about our financial position and and still I don't know all the ins and outs and how true or false it is about our FFP issues, but I think Neves, we always knew he was going to probably be moving on um, because, you know, he he sort of outgrown the club really. You know, we weren't going, you know, and rising uh, at the pace that he wants to as as a player. Obviously, I'm surprised he went to Saudi Arabia, but that's a, a different conversation. Nunes, I'm surprised, had gone. Uh, but, you know, that sale, especially after City came uh, with the interest, and obviously we know how he sort of reacted to that. The rest of the players really, you know, your Martinos, your Jimenezes, they weren't really players that were in the first team often. Uh, so they weren't really big losses for Wolves, uh, but it's just the way that it took us so long to get our incomings in. Really, we had to wait for the Nunes sale to go through before we saw any players come in. And that's why, you know, the likes of Bellegarde, who's actually suspended this weekend, Tommy Dawley, we got in from you guys, um, Santiago Bueno, who's a centre-back. A lot of these have only, you know, haven't had much time at the club at all. So there is still, again, almost like a bedding in process. You've got your manager in extremely late. You've got most of your first team in really late. Um, and that's why really the squad is just all over the place at the moment. Yeah, is it, is it in that case? Is it quite difficult to know how you'll play this this weekend? In uh, just kind of like, I mean, obviously the general sense will be, you know, City will dominate the ball, and you're kind of cutting out the space. Yeah. But is, has Gary O'Neill got a bit of a task on his hands to work out who can do what and where? Yeah, I think in terms of personnel, I could probably predict almost predict a lineup player for player because uh, you know we played a second string team against Ipswich this week in the Carabao Cup and nobody impressed. So I think the first team will be easy to you know pick, but in terms of style and how he approaches the game, I'm really unsure because we went to Old Trafford and, and took the game to them. You know we attacked them, and I think that really shocked Manchester United. Even against Liverpool at home, first half we attacked them and we were fantastic. But then the second half we were just all over the place because we actually sat deep. So that's why I'll be intrigued. I don't think any team can play against Manchester City and play on the front foot. That's just not going to happen. You'll get punished. Um, but at the same time, I think if you put six eleven men behind the ball and we get fresh like we have been at Molyneux the last couple of seasons, um, I don't think the Molyneux crowd will take to it uh, <laughs> quite lightly, unfortunately. Yeah. What do you What do you anticipate he'll do? How, how do you think he'll take it on? <sighs> Yeah, I really, I'm, I'm really unsure. I think he'll, he, he has to play some sort of counter-attacking game. I think obviously Neto's been on fire for us so far this season, so I think he'll rely on him a lot. Um, Mateus Cunha can be a quality player driving forward as well, but 
I think the way we've seen both Haaland, De Bruyne in previous years, you know, just dismantle us. We, as a club, we're going to be very, very cautious. So I think it will be one of those, a very, very long afternoon for Wolves. Um, but yeah, sit back and try and catch City on the counter, I think. Yeah. Um, who are the players that have been playing well in, in, in the last few games? Who's in form right now? So I think yeah, Neto Neto's the key one for me. I think he's picked up four assists uh, and a goal already this season and scored a great goal um, against Luton on Saturday. Uh, Juan Ki Chan as well has is, is got his shooting boots on, to be fair. I think he's got four goals now already this season. Bearing in mind our top goal scorer last season only had six throughout the whole <laughs> year. So he started off okay, to be fair. Um, so yeah, those two really are the sort of danger men for Wolves. In terms of everywhere else, it's just inconsistent performances especially from the back line the goalkeepers you know Jose Sarr had a fantastic game against Everton but been pretty underwhelming throughout and Mateus Cunha who showed some real quality against Manchester United has been sort of average ever since so we really need to get some good performances out of these players yeah and uh, just looking a, a bit more broadly then um what uh, what's your hope for the season because obviously you look at, at the league table at the moment um four points from six games three clear of uh, the bottom three and i mean we're we're only kind of six games in it's not yeah. not really time to start looking at, at the bottom three exactly but you kind of feel that um certainly there are worse teams in the league than wolves um i i, I is that kind of where you're at with the bar for this season or are you aiming a bit higher yeah, I think unfortunately that is the bar. And uh, at the start of the season, especially after that United game, which we just seem to keep bringing up on videos and podcasts, uh, we, you know, and I think we will for the remainder of the season because it almost set a bar, an unrealistic bar of, of how well we, you know, we, we were going to play. But yeah, frustratingly, I think that is just stay in the Premier League again. Um, and that's what we keep saying. Surely there are three worse teams than Wolves in this league. And that's disappointing obviously to talk like that because you know we should be confident of our quality but um yeah I think it's going to be a long long season for Wolves and it's to, to look where we were uh you know in the Europa League sort of three or four years ago to where we are now it's uh, a bit depressing really yeah um if it's any consolation been there and done that so uh, <laughs> yeah it's uh it's, it's not always been like this for City fans um Dave we got the charity back coming up a bit later on uh what's your score prediction for this game <laughs> See, I, I always tend to go, we'll try and go a little bit more positive on this, but, uh, you know, in, in my head is saying City are going to dismantle Wolves and it should be an easy win. But for the charity bet, I'm going to go with a goalless draw, David. This is the Blue Moon Podcast. But don't worry, it'll be over soon. That was Dave as a party from Talking Wolves. Um, Dan, Dave isn't sure about uh, whether Wolves will uh, approach this with a low block or whether they'll come flying out of the traps. Um, I'm kind of feeling comfortable either way because I feel like whatever Wolves try and do, City will kind of impose their game more so. Yeah, I was I was impressed by that in the Newcastle game, actually, the way that despite having made loads of changes, having a few young players in there and players playing out of position, City still just played their game, especially in the first half and really kept the ball. And, you know, they can do that against any opposition, basically. I would expect them to do the same against Wolves, dominate possession, be the better team, hopefully win the game. I think Wolves have been possibly the most enigmatic team in the league so far this season. At times, they look really sensational. I remember watching the opening weekend uh, away at United. That was an absolute daylight robbery of a game. They, they, they were carving through United at will, 
but their end product leaves an awful lot to be desired. And whatever happens this weekend, I would fancy us to score more goals than them because I just don't think they have that kind of firepower. And I think that's going to really let them down this season. So it hopefully... It just occurred to me that the player running through the middle for, for Wolves at Old Trafford was Mateus Nunes and City bought him. So that might be the difference. Yeah, there you go. That might be that might be a difference. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And hopefully it kind of goes a bit like the game at Molyneux last season where we score fairly early and then can just kind of sit on that and just, uh, you know, be calm in possession and... and maybe get a couple more goals. And I don't think we should have too much to worry about, but, you know, Rodri's not going to be there. Um, like we've, we've said at, at length in this uh, in this show, he, he's fundamental to the way City play. And I think Wolves, if there's one area that they're quite frightening in, it's, it's transitions from midfield, like the, the way they tore United apart. They, they did the same to Liverpool until Liverpool got the, the shit together and won the game in the second half. So that's something I'll be a little wary about. We need to find a way to, to block off the midfield a little bit, but we sh- with a better team, we should win the game. Yeah. Um, I want to briefly touch on Edison um, ahead of this one, Richard, because uh, we mentioned the save in the first part of the show. Uh, we've always known that he's been important in the build-up and you look at, at how City played against Forest. you know, he was able to go over the top to, to Haaland and like he's always had the ability when under pressure to play it out from the back. Um, but now he's making saves as well and that like it's really been key to City both at the end of last season and the start of this one, hasn't it? Yeah, it's absolutely huge. Um I remember being on the podcast last season and uh, having, a, I think, a bit of a disagreement with KC about Edison, where I had not been impressed by him for a little while. And I think sort of stats bore out that he was conceding more um, more goals that he should have saved than um, than like any other should have saved, that he'd be expected to save, than any other keeper in the league, I think, in the sort of early to mid part of last season. And it had always been... There'd always been the thing with Edison that it wasn't that you saw him make absolute howlers very often, but there was just always a sense of he didn't make great saves and you could bring to memory quite quickly like the few that he had, like years ago. Was it his first season at Burnley? Made a, a really important sort of match winning or, or point saving stop. And those those kind of saves were few and far between. And now it's it's massively flipped um, that, like you say, is nothing has changed about his build-up, but his, um, you know, what he can do with his feet, but his decision-making coming off his line, his, um, just the actual quality of the saves that he's making. He is now making those kind of saves where you think, like he didn't have a right to save that, or it was harder to save than not save. And I don't think that's ever really been the case with Edison. He's never been a keeper that you'd look at as, the very best of the shot stoppers. It was always just like the overall package was worth sacrificing that little bit of shot stopping quality for everything else that he offers. Yeah. So to, give, you to add- give you an idea of, of how much he's improved in that regard, one of the Brazilian journalists that covers City, uh, Fred Caldeira, was talking to Sam Lee recently about this. And um, there's a conversation happening a- around the Brazil squad about whether it should be Edison or Alisson for number one. And it's been unquestionably Alisson for a long time. Yeah, that I mean, that does feel really big. It is a, a really helpful indicator of the kind of form that he's in. When you add it all together, the kind of saves that um, the one that he made from the header against West Ham, obviously the, the kind of saves that he was making in the Champions League final and that save at the end um, against Forest, which we're all agreed was decent to excellent. Um, <laughs> like that's really, really positive. And this version of Edison that makes um, that makes the saves that that if they went in, you wouldn't be criticising him for, but he's actually getting to them and keeping them out. Um, that's huge. It's absolutely huge. And I'm I'm really, really glad to um, 
glad to see it because you know we've seen um sort of over the roadish at United like De Gea who was a great shot stopper at one point once that went like he never really recovered his form and became like a bit of a laughing stock really you know the whole fuck it it's De Gea type thing and and he was you know became a bit of a meme and Edison's going the other way and actually improving his shot stopping as he um as he progresses, I think it's amazing. Yeah, good job United have sorted that goalkeeper issue out as well. So, um, <laughs> uh, all good. Um, uh, Dan, uh, we've obviously got Leipzig as well in midweek. Uh, you're over in Germany. Um, I haven't bothered to do an interview with somebody connected to Leipzig. Do you know anything about them? Can you tell us anything, what we should expect? Yeah, yeah, loads. Yeah, they're, they're, they're really good, actually. They made a really good start to the season. Um, they lost in the summer. Uh, Guardiol, obviously. Uh, Schobersly went to Liverpool and Kunku to Chelsea. Conrad Leimer went to Bayern Munich for what seemed like really crucial players for them and they're arguably a better season, a better team this season than they were last season they've lost one game so far 3-2 to a, a, a Bayer Leverkusen side who were really decent as well Marco Rosa is a really good coach for Leipzig uh, they've got a young lad called Xavi Simons on loan from PSG who's been really good this season and they've signed a couple of forwards over the summer Benjamin Sesko and Luis Alpenda who are really dangerous they tend to set up in like a sort of 4-4-2 four, four, or 4 Two 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 formation sometimes is that too many numbers I don't know. Oh, is that, um, is, is that the old Mancini style? Yeah, a little bit like that. Yeah, and they could be they be quite difficult to break down, quite dangerous on the counter attack. Um, yeah, I think this is going to be a hard game, a really tough test. Probably, well, definitely the best test we'll get in the uh, the group stage this season, and uh, almost certainly not going to be another seven nil win for City. I don't think. Yeah. How do you feel hearing that then, Richard? Because um, obviously, if you look at, at just how it went last season, you think ah, walk in the park. Yeah, um, it's the kind of game that uh, clearly I am not as uh, clued up on Leipzig as as Dan clearly is. So it's the kind of game that I always look at when it's coming up and think, um, you know, in our annual game against the games against them, like I sort of expect a difficult game. Um, Obviously, it doesn't always turn out that way. So I suppose everything that Dan said, like good coach, good team doesn't surprise me just sort of fits with what I'd expect from them I'd always expect them to be the hardest game in a group that City could play in realistically but I suppose I just always still have the sort of baseline expectation that City would win and really really good yeah (laughs) yeah a game like this against a um, a football team owned by a sort of multinational company just really does leave you wondering how City (laughs) ever expected to compete Oh dear! Um, I, I should have you signposted that, and I didn't see it coming. Well, um, Dan, for the broader picture, um, obviously Wolves, Leipzig, and then Arsenal. We'll cover the Arsenal game in more depth on next week's show. But how much should that game be in Guardiola's thinking for these two? The thing is, I'm honestly not sure who who's fit and who isn't at the moment. It's it's a little bit confusing. I mean. I, is Bernardo Silva fit again? I don't know. We'll, we'll probably have to wait until the press conference to find out. John Stones, there seems to be no sign of him coming back. We could really do with, with him getting some minutes before the Arsenal game, but I don't know if he's going to be ready for the Arsenal game, even if he does get a, get a run out in the next couple of games. So I don't know really. I don't know if the Arsenal game is going to be that pivotal, coming as it does in at this stage of the season, given the start we've made. You know, we're four points ahead of them, which is, you know, a nice little cushion going into the game. I would obviously still like to win the game, but... 
I don't know if there's perhaps a big need to overthink this one really and, and to, yeah. to to worry about it too much. It's, and one, I think, it's one game in a 38-game season. Exactly, yeah. And, you know, Pep usually prefers rhythm to rest anyway, doesn't he? So I think the best way to prepare for Arsenal is, is probably to play well, win the next two games and head to the Emirates full of confidence. And then uh, hopefully by then he knows what his best Rodriguez 11 is as well. Yeah. Well, uh, let's see if we can't predict what happens because uh, we've raised £175 so far on this season's charity bet. Two more attempts to add to that this week. William Hill is giving us three £10 correct score singles and the winnings are going to the Man City Fans Food Bank support group who are helping Manchester Central Food Bank. Uh, we heard earlier on from uh, Dave Azapardi that he's gone for uh, what he called an optimistic nil-nil draw uh, between City and Wolves at the weekend. That's 18-1 to 1 and £180 if he's right. Um, Dan, what are you having for this one? 2-0 uh, City. 2-0 City is 13-2 to two and £65. Richard? Uh, I'm going 3-0 to City. 3-0 uh, City is 17-2 to two and £85. Um, Dan, we'll go over to you for the uh, Leipzig game. What are you having? 2-1 to City. 2-1 City is 8-1 uh, to one and £80. Richard? Uh, a very low-scoring 1-0 City win. Yeah, in fact, I, I would go as far to say there's only one score that's lower scoring than that. I agree. Yeah, uh, nine to one if you're right. Uh, Ninety quid, and uh, I've gone two nil, uh, which is slight, which is low scoring, but not quite as low scoring as yours. Uh, that's also nine to one and ninety pounds if I am right. Uh, remember, you've got to be eighteen or over to gamble. Prices can change, and please gamble responsibly. If you'd like information on gambling responsibly, then head over to begambleaware.org. And that brings us to an end for today's Blue Moon podcast. Thank you very much for listening, and thanks also to my guests for this one, Richard Burns. Thank you very much, and Dan Burke. My pleasure as always. Back next week. See you then. That was the Blue Moon Podcast. Please give the show a rating and a review where you can. And don't forget, you can listen without the ads by signing up to our Patreon. You'll also get an extra episode each Monday. Here's a clip of this week's. I'm surprised Adam didn't put him in his top 10 because Adam wrote something about Otomendi oh, that God, was don't. absolutely hilarious. Do you remember I've, what it was? I've written theses on Otomendi. <laughs> I, mean, I, I, I did two two articles on him. Uh, and then I think the tweet you're referring to is, it was Wolves at home when he went to ground and Jimenez ripped him in uh, 1920. But I think I tweeted that uh, Nicholas Otomendi may well be nicknamed the general but remember, many generals were trialled at the Hague for crimes against humanity. I think that was, that was what I tweeted. Uh, yeah, so... Amazing. I want his biggest fan. My memories of him, I have two really strong memories of him, is when he took off his shirt and he basically had, like, picky blinders and uh, Breaking Bad and Prison Break tattooed all over him. It was just like, what are you doing? Uh, and then when De Bruyne, I think it was in a derby, Later on, we yeah. said he were like really holding on for the victory, and he fouled somebody really close yes. to the box. And De Bruyne just like with his arms flayed out, goes, "Nico, no!" <laughs> like absolutely spoke what we were all thinking. <laughs> you can listen to more of that at patreon.com forward slash Blue Moon Podcast, and join us again next time for another episode. <laughs>